Well, good morning, church. Good to see you today. Stand up if you're in some England attire. Yes. Oh, come on. Oh, oh, come up here, Mary. Look, let's. Josh, can you just come over here, please? Come on. Let's see your. Can we see your earrings? Show the camera your earrings. I love that. I love that. So good. I love the patriotism right there. Phil, you put in no effort whatsoever. I'm trusting you've got England underwear on. That's what I'm. I'm not thinking about that. That'd be weird. But that's what I'm hoping. Um, well, it is really good to be together today. Um, we're continuing our series on the Holy Spirit. Such a key, I was going to say topic, but the Holy Spirit isn't a topic. He's the person of the Godhead. He's the person of the Elohim. He's the breath of God. He's the wind of heaven. And um, often I'll call him the game changer in the Christian faith, but even that is selling him short in so many ways. Because the Holy Spirit is God. He's of God and he's sent from God to not just give you the warm and fuzzies on a Sunday morning, but actually to empower you to live the biggest life possible for Christ. And um, I'm excited about that prospect. Even more than I'm excited about England getting to the final. And I am excited about that. Who's excited about England in the final? Don't you think it's amazing? that It's coming home. I love it. I love it. Um, don't, don't you think it's funny how, like, going into the tournament, everyone was like, Gareth Southgate loser but now he's like savior of the nation like (laughs) nicely played Richard come on (laughs) I love it I love it we know know that this stream is going to get taken down immediately because we've infringed all sorts of copyright we've broken the law in so many ways Uh, but it was worth it for that brief moment of glory it's coming home Well, I'd like to say my message today is about that. It really isn't. It's about something far more important. Of course, I love football and I love the England team in the final. And so my head is there as well. I'm excited about that. And there's nothing bad about that. But today, I I really want to kind of, uh, I guess, talk about something that I'm finding more to be true in my life and speak from a place, I guess, of my own experience, but also something that I hope will really equip you in the days in which we live, because it's hard. It is hard. Um... And it's not always a good way to start a Sunday morning message by, I guess, painting the picture of the reality in which we currently live. People's confidence is not. People's livelihoods have been taken in so many ways. Some people have died as a result of this pandemic. Um, Some people have died as a result of the pandemic, being in isolation, being alone. People have died alone. People have married on their own. No, not on their own. That would be weird. But, you know, with very few people, people have died and people haven't been able to go to the funerals. And so, really, we haven't just been interrupted We've been disrupted. Like, life as we know it has changed. And it's no good just saying, well, I can't wait for it to go back to normal because there is no going back. There's only going forwards to the next thing. And, you know, this morning, I, I just want to try, if I can, to speak into the, the, the future, speak into the potential, but also the reality in which we currently find ourselves. You know, a, a great leader once said that to get people to move to point B, you need to sell them why point A really sucks. Okay, so you, you've got to try and give people a discontentment for where they're at to give them a yearning for the, for, for the wide ocean. And so, um, you know, it's interesting because in uh, John 14, Jesus says a soundbite that I think is so profound, very challenging. He says this to his disciples. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. And it's an interesting instruction that Jesus gives to his disciples because what it suggests to me 
Is that a troubled heart is the choice of the person who owns the heart. Does that make sense? Don't let your hearts be troubled. Suggesting that like we can determine and discern and decide today whether we're going to let our hearts be troubled by the things we're facing globally, the things we're facing nationally, and the things we're facing personally. It is a choice and a decision, and it almost sounds unpastoral to say that. But Jesus seems to give this insight that like to his disciples in this moment, don't let your hearts be troubled because so often what happens is we allow the external reality of the world outside of us to determine the world inside of us. We allow circumstances, seasons and situations, hardships, difficulties, heartaches to determine whether we know a peace or not, whether we know a joy or not, whether we live in the fullness of his presence or not. And and this is a profound kind of thought to get your head around because so often what happens is in our desperation, in our brokenness and in our heartache, the inner peace is robbed. And, And so what we do is we go to God about our external circumstances rather than our inner peace. Does that make sense? If you're facing marital challenge, if you're facing betrayal in your family, if you're facing heartache over one of your children, if you're facing challenges even in your finances, and if we use the finance thing as an example, it's easier for us to grapple with because we don't have to get too personal about our world. But if we're struggling, say, with £5,000 worth of credit card debt, and I'm not reducing the gospel to finance because the gospel is way more than that, but what we're inclined to do is pray about the debt rather than the peace. Because what we think is that if God can address the debt, then our peace will be sorted. And what we do is we live from the outside in. Because what we're praying for is a change in our environment to bring a sense of stability and comfort on the inside, rather than allowing the peace that surpasses all understanding to consume us on the inside and affect our lives and worlds on the outside. That's how the world lives. The world lives limited by the restriction and limitations of sight, but the church is called to live according to faith. I live by faith and not by sight. That's what it means to live from the inside out. I determine in my heart that there's a peace that surpasses understanding, and it doesn't matter what plays on on the outside of the world, coronavirus or not, whether I die or not is irrelevant because my peace is settled on the inside. So Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled, and it's not just like some positive waffle. It's actually rooted in profound biblical truth. That God wants you to know a reality that is at odds with the world's outside of you. And this is why being a Christian should be a witness to the world. We should witness to the fact that Christ is risen. Not because we've told someone Jesus is risen, although we should. But because people see in us an outlook that is polar opposite to the world. Totally at odds with the world. When people are gloomy and despairing, we're not of that. Now I'm not saying we don't have hard times. But what we do is on the inside of us, we have the breath of God, the ruah of God, the spirit of God that changes everything. So Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Speaking to a mostly Jewish audience, he says, you believe in God. Okay, so Jehovah, you believe in God. And he says, believe also in me. And then what I love in John 14, verse 2, check it out. He says, my father's house has many rooms. And it's weird It's a weird kind of language because, like, what is he talking about? These disciples are worried about their very immediate future, but Jesus is causing them to look beyond the temporary. He's saying, in my father's house are many 
rooms. Can you rack that up, Richard, or not? Yeah. In my Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And so Jesus gives them a reason for peace on the basis that this, what you experience right now, it is not eternal. This, what you're facing right now, isn't forever. It's only temporary. So, so the reason this is important, I believe in healing. I'll pray for healing until someone dies and I'll pray for resurrection. So I just need to say that. But if someone has a terminal diagnosis, it's not actually terminal whether they die or not. Because now in Christ we are eternal beings. And so Jesus kind of tries to capture vision B to his disciples by saying, I'm preparing a place for you. And it, and it rises above the circumstances of your day-to-day life. This place that Jesus is preparing isn't at risk when you have a bad day at work. It's not at risk when you lose that job that you expected to work in the rest of your life. It's not at risk when the marriage that you've loved for so long is now seems to be drifting and, and, and just you're losing it through your hands even though you're trying to grip it. It's not at risk when one of your children blindsides you with a stupid decision. <laughs> Anyone got children that make silly decisions at times? No, not at all. Not at all. Dominic, can you pray for me after the service? Please. I want your anointing. <laughs> you know, like and online at home, like your, your, your peace should not be robbed by these circumstantial matters. Yes, they're important to God, but ultimately Jesus wants his disciples to know that I'm preparing a place. And so what that allows you to do for a moment is to lift your eyes above your circumstances and look to a future glory, look to a future hope, and look to a future reality that is not at risk uh, and is not uh, able to be threatened by circumstances of life. So Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Now why is Jesus saying this? You know, as a side note, it's kind of interesting right now because my mom and dad, many of you know my mom and dad, Jeff and Barbara, or Babs as she loves to be called, not. All right, Babs. Um, they, they are moving house. Currently they live in Sturmitz and Newton with my sister, but my brother is organizing a little annex to be built in his garden. It's great. It's basically like a two-man tent. It's amazing. Oh, I'm playing. It's not. It's a proper building and everything. Um, but yeah, he's organizing this, this glorious structure to be built in his garden so that they can live the rest of their days in. And it's amazing because since that decision was made like a year ago, my mom and dad's whole outlook on life has been lifted dramatically. You know, they were concerned about their future, about the fact of, well, who's going to look after us when we're old? Well, now my brother's going to do it. Fact! And when he watches his back, it's on you, brother, sucker! Um, just saying, just saying. I'm just saying. I mean, he's done it. He's the one who put the house in his garden. It's up to him. So in the days ahead, you know, when mom needs caring for, because she's going to outlive dad. Fact. Okay. It's on you, brother. Um, now I'm playing. I'll help. Um, I'll have them every boxing day. Um, I'll be sure. I'll be sure. <laughs> but it's amazing because it's only a temporal, <laughs> it's a temporal win, right? I mean, it's just, it's just a house. But it's amazing how it's affected their outlook. And Jesus is trying to lift his disciples' eyes away from the current circumstances they're facing. Why is that? Well, up to near this area in the Gospel of John, Jesus' disciples have been on a tremendous, exciting journey with Jesus. Like, they've seen some incredible things, and I've spoken about this before, so I'm not going to labor the point too much. But they have seen the messianic miracles, the things that prove that Jesus is who he says he is. They've seen him turn water into wine. They've seen him feed the 5,000. 
They've sat under his revolutionary radical teaching. The fact that Jesus says, I am the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. They've also sat under the Sermon on the Mount, which is all about the practicalities of of prayer and worry and fasting and divorce and hate and murder and all these things. So they've, they've heard amazing things and they've seen amazing things. So why is now Jesus saying in John 14, don't let your hearts be troubled? Well, let me just help you understand this contextually. In John 12, Jesus predicts his death to the disciples. So the very one that was a huge source of comfort and confidence, Jesus Christ, in the life of his disciples, James and John and Peter, Matthew and so on, Jesus says in John 12, I'm going to suffer and die. So now what's happening is this world that they have experienced for the last three years is under fire. Their lived reality over the last three years of these miraculous highs and these enlightening messages they've heard are now under fire because Jesus is saying, I'm going to die. Okay, it kind of gets worse because in John 13 verse 18, Jesus even predicts the betrayal of Judas. So imagine that looking at one of the 12 disciples as you're sat there, and he's saying, you're going to betray me. And interestingly, that in John 13, verse 31, Jesus predicts Peter's denial. So in a very short period of time, Jesus predicts his death, he predicts his betrayal, and he predicts Peter's denial. And so, of course, Jesus has thrown all of his disciples into flux. Because this world that they'd come to treasure and love for the last three years was now at risk of fading away. But Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Like Because at times life can be overwhelming. Like circumstances just can be. You don't have to go through the hardest of trials in life to experience that life isn't as great as sometimes we're led to believe. Life is hard. Life is desperate at times. You have big questions. You have good days, you have bad days. Even Christians can struggle with worry and anxiety at times and battle depression. But I think that's why it's even more important this morning that you receive this instruction to not let your hearts be troubled. Don't allow your peace and joy to be stolen by what you're seeing and what you're hearing. But what I love about John 14, and I do love that passage... I love the fact that a little bit later, just 15 verses later, Jesus says something that I find even more encouraging than that. He says this in verse 15, and I think it's so funny, these few words. If you love me, keep my commands. (laughs) I love that because I feel like it's like a passive-aggressive kind of coercive notion. Louise, if you love me, you'll do exactly what I say. And spouses in the room, you can welcome to try it. I mean, Jesus says it, why not? And see if you get a slap or not, <laughs> if you love me. I definitely try it with my, dis- my disciples, my children, I was going to say, but I came out as disciples. <laughs> I'm so churched. I even call my own children my disciples. <laughs> Come on, my disciples. Right, which one of you is going to betray me? <laughs> Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commands. And it's not just some passive, aggressive, coercive thing. It's actually Jesus wanting us to live the biggest, best life we possibly can. And how do we do that? Actually come into alignment and agreement with his teaching. The best life to be experienced is the one that Jesus tells you how to live. Fact. You know, even the Old Testament, the the commandments were not given 
to kill the fun. They, they were actually given to maximise life. Literally. Don't kill. <laughs> like, and there's something in Jesus' teaching. Like, I love that bit where Jesus brings a heavy teaching and thousands of people leave Jesus' side because he's talking about eating flesh and drinking blood and people are like, what is this? Like Harry Potter, what is it? And people leave. And then Jesus turns to his disciples and says, do you want to go too? And they say, where else do we go? Like you alone have the words of eternal life. It's kind of interesting that when Jesus says, keep my commands, he's not some power trip kind of dictator. He's a loving saviour that says, listen, like everything I've said and spoken is for your betterment and for your building and edification. It's not to kill your joy. It's to give you the fullness of it. And to that end, Jesus says in verse 16, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate. Some of you in your scriptures, it will say counsellor. He will give you a counsellor. In Greek, the word is parakletos. Everybody say parakletos. And it means helper. And I love that. And this is why I love it more than John 14 verse 1. Because... The context of an overwhelming confidence is not based on your future hope. It's based on this present promise. That like, you don't have to wait to die to experience the life of God. You know, like some people like reduce Christianity to like a get out of jail free card. Like if I don't have to go to hell, I'm in. I said in the first service that a little while ago, um, someone we're no one close with was sent to uh, prison and um, we were writing a letter to him and my son Caleb insisted that we put a get out of jail free card into the letter <laughs> from Monopoly. So we did, because that's the bird way. It was well received, don't worry, but it did make me laugh. Just to open that and to get a get out of jail free card. I wonder if anyone's ever done that before, but it did make me chuckle. But, you know, it's kind of interesting that sometimes we reduce Christianity to what comes after life. And Jesus, at this point, in verse 15, seems to be more concerned with what comes during life. Not just a future hope, but a present promise. Not just one that I'm preparing a place for you, he is that. But actually, I'm going to send you a helper. Who needs help? I remember back when I was at secondary school at Sneed. Jake, Jake always laughs when I say that my school was called Sneed. He's like, that can't be a real name. I was like, it is. It's Sneed School, Sneed Comp. And my science teacher, my science teacher always used to say, Dom, you need help. <laughs> always. Because science, I just didn't see the purpose of, to be honest. I was like, I don't want to be a doctor. I don't know why I'm here. So I would mess around a lot. They had that fume cupboard, and you could get away with murder with that thing. Like, you could set fire to loads of stuff. And she would say, Dom, you need help. And it's funny because often we use it in a derogatory way, like he's a bit cuckoo. You need help. But actually, if we can just give up the ghost just for a moment and just lay down something of our own self-projected confidence and just say, I need help. White flag moment. I think that's a profound thing in the Christian war. That... and I say this, it's not, it's not a problem, but it is a problem if this is all it is. Sometimes we only present our white flag to people. I need help, and we will be so quick to offload all of the struggles and the shortcomings in our world because what we want is the attention of people. 
And I'm not saying that you shouldn't share with people you should, but if that's where it stops, then you are really living short of God's best because God wants you to come to him and say, I need help. You, you see, you can get a shoulder of a brother or sister in Christ and you can cry and you can weep and those things are amazing. You can get prayer, you should get all of those things. But it's only God that can change it. And more often than not, what I've learned in my experience is that he, he doesn't so much change the circumstance as much as he changes me. And then my circumstance changes. Because what I do is I'm living from the inside out. So my world comes into alignment with the reality of God. And then my decisions are working out differently and affecting my outer world. And so Jesus says, I'm going to send you a helper. And I love that. And I love this because it says, it's going to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth. We know ultimately this is fulfilled in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes. We've looked at that already, so I'm not going to go back there. But what I love is this, and it's just a soundbite that I've been dwelling on the last couple of days that I want to offer you for your consideration. It's this, because he says the Holy Spirit's going to be with you forever. So can we understand this as believers, that forever starts now? Forever doesn't start when you die. Forever doesn't start when you go to heaven. All hell if you don't know Jesus. Jesus says, I'm going to send you a helper and he's going to be with you forever. If you know Christ as your saviour and you've received the breath of God, if you've received the spirit of God, your forever's already begun. Yeah, there's a mere obstacle called death that you get through. But that's all it is. It's not a door, it's not a wall. It's just another aspect to this eternity that we are constantly moving towards, but our forever has already begun. And Jesus says this helper will come and he'll be with you forever. And I love this. He says the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. So this isn't for unbelievers. This is only for those who know Jesus. And listen, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So the invitation is not that Jesus is building some cosmic orphanage in the sky. That's not the place he's preparing for you. He's giving you a spirit, the spirit of God. And by his spirit, he is revealing Christ to you and in you. You are becoming like Christ, but at the seal of the Holy Spirit, you become a son and daughter of God. So this Holy Spirit works towards your sanctification and actually makes you more like Christ. And as a result, you're not left as an orphan because sometimes I think the biggest contributor to mental health issues and anxiety is the feeling of being lost. Walking through world without purpose, walking through world without meaning, walking through the world without feeling like you're being held. And so Jesus says, yeah, I'm preparing a place for you, but I'm going to send a helper. Because you're going to need a helper. You're going to need him. And I kind of want to just land the message today with trying to bring a bit of insight and teaching around, well, how does the Holy Spirit help? Because it's all very well to say, yeah, the Holy Spirit helps. But how does he help, really? Because I think so often what we do is when we think of the Holy Spirit, right, and maybe this is just me, and I'm cool with that, right, but I'll put it out there. 
I think we're like Aladdin and the Holy Spirit's the genie. You know, like this charismatic figure that pops out of the lamp and, hey, what do you want then? <laughs> Just me? He was a terrible genie. Hey, like it. Oh, oh, hey. I don't know. I can't remember how he does it. But I'll just move on from that. But like, you know, we, we kind of think, well, how does the Holy Spirit help? Because if he doesn't help in very practical ways, like if he's not going to come and help me fix my marriage, and he's not going to come and address my bank statement, he's not going to get me the dream job, and he's not going to just make me happy, then what's the point in the Holy Spirit helping? And I guess what I want to lay before you, because the five things that I'm going to give you this morning sound very anticlimactic. You may, I mean, they're not anticlimactic, but it may sound that way, because sometimes in our desperation, what we want is the breakthrough. You know, we want the solve. We want the win. But actually, often it's through the process that the Holy Spirit really brings stuff into existence in your life. And so I kind of think it's a bit like Solomon in the Old Testament. Solomon in the scriptures, get this, did almost have like an Aladdin and genie moment, if you like. (laughs) You know, God invited Solomon to say, what do you want, Solomon, and I'll give it to you. Solomon could have asked for anything. He could have asked for an empire that was like unparalleled. He could have asked for riches that were unfathomable. He could have asked asked for all women's affections and attentions to be turned towards him. But Solomon asked for something very underwhelming. He asked for wisdom. And it's so funny because wisdom becomes the key to unlocking mass victories. Wisdom becomes the key to unlocking mass riches. Wisdom becomes the key to unlocking like the attention of the world on his throne. And it's an interesting thought because at first glance you think Solomon missed an opportunity. But actually in asking for wisdom he got the world. And so what I want to talk about today in terms of how the Holy Spirit helps is like this. It's a bit like, it may seem like, well, how is it? But if we understand them as a collection of things that the Holy Spirit does deep within us, and we can receive that properly and understand properly what the Holy Spirit does, it's not about meeting our carnal desires or even meeting our need. It's actually about a transformation on the inside. And... I know it's hard to see it when you're in the midst of hardship and heartache. But actually the thing you need more than the solution to that is the solution to your heart. And so here's the first thing that the Holy Spirit does, okay? He fills you. He fills you. I don't know if you feel empty, but he fills you. I don't know if you feel like hollow on the inside. Holy Spirit wants to fill you. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, I preached on this in the church series, but he says, do you not know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? In other words, you are a temple of God and the Holy Spirit resides in you as the temple. Louise, can you pass me that, please? But I just want to bring a little bit of uh, teaching that I hope will stick with you. Um... Because if we picture this water as the Holy Spirit and this cup, this vessel is us, then I think so often what we think is that the Holy Spirit fills us and then we just go through life having been filled with the Spirit. Like, I don't know, maybe it was like a filling at Soul Survivor in 2018. 
and you're in that tent with like 15,000 youngsters and you just felt like, oh, God, he's amazing. And you felt like the quickening of the spirit and you're just like, wow, this is going to change forever. This is going to be so good. Or, or maybe, you know, for some of the older folk, it was like spring harvest in the 80s. Back in the good old days when the worship was proper. You know, and you had Graham Kendrick just jamming away, singing Majesty. Nothing like it. And Dave Bilber and his wife on the timpani banging those drums. My imagination goes to weird places. All hell the lamb. And like that moment in worship where you're waving your hanky because you were just so ecstatic because you were feeling the presence of God. And you, you, just, you were lifted for a moment and you, you weren't at Butlins, you were in heaven. Right? You were not at Minehead, you were at Godhead. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, it's awkward, eh? And, and, and we, we experienced that moment and what we do is we think, well, yeah, we've been filled, but what we fail to understand is that life isn't that simple. And that as humans, when you give your life to Christ, you are made right with God and your relationship is restored, but you're still limping. And so, um, I'm not sure whose pen this is, I apologise, but, you know, that relationship Maybe you need to come... Yeah, can you see that, Josh? That relationship with your wife that's breaking down, that, that's a drain on the life of God in your frame. That, that job that didn't go as you'd hoped, that child of yours who's cheeky, hard work, and doesn't seem to be compliant in any way, shape, or form. You're already threatening calling the police, and they're only five years old. <laughs> Never been there myself. I call Santa Claus. That's what I do. Um... Or, or maybe it's just the fact that like, you've had so many negative words spoken over you or to you that actually when you look in the mirror now, you despise yourself. That's a very real thing. Or anxiety. You just can't believe that anybody wants anything good for you. And what happens is actually you go through life leaking. You, you go through life and every circumstance and hardship and heartache you experience... It's a drain on the life of God in you. And you'd be well within your right to say, well, how does that work? Because if the Holy Spirit, that's amazing, then surely you should be plugging those holes. Well, I think that does happen. I think actually as God, as you go through the process of sanctification, becoming more like Christ, areas and margins are addressed in your life. And sometimes, but they can be knocked. And you can have a bad day. And sometimes it's like that. And so... Ten years after that experience at Soul Survivor, we're in such a low place that we're thinking, well, where are you, God? What felt so real and so intimate now feels so contrived and faded. And I love this because in Ephesians 5, I love what Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. Listen to this in verse 18. He says, don't get drunk on wine. And I think that's really interesting. Am I against drinking? No. Am I against drunkenness? Yes. Why? Because drunkenness, I believe, is done in a pursuit of filling an inner void. To try and ignore or escape from a problem that you're facing. But make no mistake about it, those who don't drink in the room, you're not off the hook. Maybe it's um, 
help me out, Ruby. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's the desire to be affirmed by man. Maybe it's gambling. You see, all those things that are done, you may not see it for what it is, but let me tell you how the Bible sees it. It's in a pursuit to try and fill the void that you feel, the hollowness, the emptiness, the pursuit for meaning and purpose. And so Paul just says, don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. In other words, it it only goes downhill. And what he says is, instead, be filled with the Spirit. Now, it's an imperative present tense when Paul says that. So in other words, this is how it reads in the original Greek. Instead, keep being filled with the Holy Spirit. So it's not about that one moment 10 years ago or 20 years ago. It's about a daily yielding. And actually, yes, you're going to, leave, you're going to have hard days, but the idea is, is that you are coming into agreement with Jesus about who you are and who he is. And you're receiving the filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, now you can see that being filled with the Holy Spirit may not at first glance address your broken marriage. But you'll be surprised how when you're filled with the Spirit, how relationships change in your life. How you start making different decisions. So you go through life and you keep being filled. It's a daily thing. The second thing that the Holy Spirit does is that he convicts you. And it's not condemnation, and I need to be quick here. It's not condemnation and it's not judgment from an unloving being. Conviction is a putting his finger on something in your behavior, mindset, attitude that is at odds with the reality of who Christ is. It's sinful, basically. And when the Holy Spirit fills you, he doesn't just come to say, ah, do you feel great about yourself now? No, actually, what he comes to do is bring conviction on the inside. Because actually, as the Holy Spirit fills you, what's happening is the spirit of the world is being pushed out. You know, as a vessel, as you're being filled with the spirit, it's like those margins. And that's why I said a few weeks ago, like years gone by, you may have had this historic attitude and mindset. But as you move closer to Jesus, things that you were doing yesterday become completely unacceptable today. Because the life of God is pressing it out. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. He convicts, and he says that in John 16, verse 8. He also teaches you. We read that the Spirit the Father will send in my name, in John 14, verse 25, 26, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. So the Holy Spirit will serve to be like a homeschool teacher. One in sharp contrast to my wife. One who convicts and doesn't condemn. (laughs) You are great, really, Luby. I'm just teasing. But he teaches you. He teaches you. He wants to teach you the scriptures. You've got to read the scriptures first and allow him to teach you the scriptures. But it leads me on to the next thing. He enlightens you. I love this verse. Listen to this. This is in 1 Corinthians 2. Check this out. Just listen, receive this. What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has ever conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thought except their own spirit within them? 
In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. It's, it's not information, it's revelation. The Holy Spirit comes and brings revelation, wisdom and power. Not just information about who God is, but actually knowledge of who he is intimately. In another passage, we read this in Ephesians 1. I keep asking, this is Paul again praying. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Why, Paul? Here's why. So that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. What does the Holy Spirit do? It opens our eyes, brings revelation, brings wisdom. Like this is such a twee thing and it falls down, but I'm going to say it because maybe it will help you understand the difference. Um and you've probably heard this before, is that knowledge is knowing that tomato is a fruit. Okay? That's knowledge. Knowledge is understanding that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom and revelation is knowing not to put it in a fruit salad. You understand, right? It's not just information. It's the application, the godly application of the knowledge. It's what the Holy Spirit does. It enlightens you. You think differently to other people. You see things differently to other people. You don't just have a carnal kind of understanding. You have like a heaven-sent, God-breathed wisdom on a matter. Again, does this change your finances straight away? No, but it will do. You, you can't be operating under the revelation of the Spirit and the wisdom of God and be gambling your thousands away. The two are at odds. And finally, he empowers you. In Ephesians 3, it says, I pray that out of his is he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people. Dunamis. Dunamis. It's like this, this energy of God. So five things, and then we've got to land this plane. Five things is he fills us. That's how the spirit helps us. He fills us, fills that void, fills that emptiness. He brings conviction so that we can begin to make better decisions about our behaviours, our mindsets and our attitudes. He teaches us. He shows us new things in the scriptures that we didn't see before. He gives us the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that it's not just a knowledge of who God is, but it's an intimacy with God himself. And he empowers us to live a powerful life, to speak to sickness, to speak to the demonic to speak to depression and anxiety, to speak truth and prophesy life. This is how the Holy Spirit helped. When I was away with a family a couple of weeks ago in Cornwall, every year we do uh, something called the Camel Trail. And it's a few miles bike ride between Weybridge and Padstow. It's on the coast. It's a beautiful bike ride. And every year we do it. And as our stage of life changes we've got a different proposition. Typically, up until this year, we had a child. We've got three boys, 10, 7, and the youngest four. Haven't been to Cornwall for two years, but last time, obviously, we had one sat on a seat on the back of the bike. But this year, we needed to do it differently because Zeke wouldn't be content to just be a spectator there. 
But he can cycle a bike. Like, he's good at cycling. But we're talking about eight or nine miles. So we knew we needed a better solution. I had my bike uh, already in Cornwall, but Louise didn't have her bike. So we hired a bike that has like a bike trailer on the back of the bike. Um, but not a bike trailer, something you sit in, but actually a bike trailer. Like you, it's, you actually ride a bike on the back of a bike. Have you ever seen that? I'm blown away by this invention. I'm like, this is insane. So we hired Louise, an adult's female bike, obviously, relevant detail, but just telling you. And then off that bike, a little chassis bar of a wheel with its own pedals and chain and handlebars. Obviously, that's where Zeke goes, not where Louise goes, okay? And it's kind of interesting because we're progressing to Padstow. And I'm cycling, and I'm not going to lie, I'm one of the most competitive dads in the world, probably just less than Danny Jackson, one of the guys from Sunny Hill. But I'm pretty up there. I don't care how old my kids are. If they're not good enough to beat me at Monopoly, they're not winning. I'm not going to concede Mayfair just because they're little and cute, okay? I'm going to make sure they know who's the man of the house, right? And so on this bike ride, I'm not like going easy at it. I'm like, come on, let's go. And I'm setting the thing. I've got a big bike, like this big, not a penny farthing. That's not where the saddle is. It's like a big wheels like this. And I'm cycling. And Caleb and Judah, especially Judah, who's seven, he's got a BMX, so he doesn't have gears. He's just like wrapping his legs around the thing, trying to keep up with us as much as possible. And he's the lazy one as well. He's got like zero energy at the best of times. And so he's like, you know, but Zeke is absolutely loving life he's loving it because really in many ways for the first time in his whole existence there's the potential for him to beat his brothers and so he sat behind Louise wind in his hair on his saddle looking dead ahead cycling now and again like maybe cycling for one minute in every ten. He gets tired and his feet come off and they just star out of the side. And Louise is doing the work again on the bike. Louise isn't the best cyclist. I need to tell you that. Like she's, she's not a great cyclist. What is funny, isn't it? We went on a bike ride a few weeks ago down the beach and she tried to get off the bike like that rather than like that. And her foot got caught and it was like a slow motion fail. It was so funny. <laughs> And, you know, you've got that moment as a husband where you, you go, do I help or do I just pretend I don't know her? So I went with the latter. I just snuck down the alley. I was like, I heard people come over to her, so I knew she was all right. But, like, me and Caleb cracking up. It was like slow motion, so it didn't look painful. She wasn't moving at pace. There was no blood. It was just like a mannequin being blown over in the wind. It was like, it was so funny. But now I'm entrusting my four-year-old into her competency on a bike. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because, like, Zeke is, like, is, like, cycling, cycling away, and, and he's like passing his brothers at times and going, woohoo! And when he's got the energy, putting a bit of energy through the pedals, but more often than not, just sitting there like a star, going, yeah! I think it's a glorious picture of our life living in the slipstream of the Holy Spirit. I mean, it sounds twee, but I believe it. That like the hardest time for Louise to cycle it was every time Zeke would get distracted and would start looking around because he'd start throwing his weight in a funny direction. And then Louise went, whoa. And then I'll get my phone out really quick just in case. <laughs> I actually did, didn't I? Caleb bashed one of his, chipped one of his teeth. It was worth it. It was a great trick that we did. But um, anyways, that's a story for another time. But yeah, Zeke just like 
And Louise would say, just look at my back, Zeke, look at my back. That's what she kept saying, just heard it the whole way. It kind of ruined the bike ride. Just look at my back, Zeke. Just look at my back. Because every time he started looking around at his brothers, he would, whoa. So the best place was for him to just sit behind his mom and to pedal, or not, but just to live in that slipstream of grace. It's kind of like a picture of the Holy Spirit, how the Holy Spirit comes. And sometimes what we do is we... we we take the driving seat and we throw the spirit on the trailer. And what that means is like every so often we feel a little nudge. Like when Zeke pedaled, Louise would feel a bit of added momentum. But actually that's not how it's supposed to be. How it's supposed to be is us being led, being driven, being held by the spirit of God. So make no mistake about it. When Jesus says, I'm going to send you a helper, it's not just some assistant that just sits off side stage. Someone who wants to lead you into life. Someone who will fill you, convict you, teach you, enlighten you, empower you. I don't know about you, but I need help. Jesus, this morning, I thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your Holy Spirit, Lord. Thank you that you, that you are preparing a place for us, Lord. That you are preparing a room for us. God, I thank you, Father, that we have a future hope. But Lord, I also thank you, God, that we have a present help. I thank you today that we stand in accordance with your word and believe, Jesus, that you want to send your Holy Spirit to each one of us to help us live for you. And so, Jesus, today, we just come with humility and an openness of heart and just say, Holy Spirit, would you, would you come and fill us afresh, Lord, God, would you keep filling us? Would you keep us in that posture of humility and dependency to keep saying, Holy Spirit, I need you. Holy Spirit, I need you. Holy Spirit, I need you. And Lord God, we give you license to convict us. Uh, Lord, we invite you to teach us, to enlighten us, to empower us. Because in all things, Father, we just want to follow you through life. So God, for every person who feels like they are out of steam on the cycle path of life, for every person who feels like they are weary and weak. I pray today, Lord, that they would just get off that seat and give it to you and become a passenger, a contributing passenger. God, I thank you for your goodness and we welcome your Holy Spirit to do a new thing in these days in which we live in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. And finally, it's coming home, guys. Lord, as well, help England tonight. Please beat the Italians in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.